Welcome to the show, Phenomenosophy, Episode 8, The Black Mirror. Are digital devices and platforms impacting us individually, socially, and culturally in a detrimental way? Can we integrate these technologies in our lives and preserve our humanity? Today we will discuss the digital era and the significant ways in which our digital devices and our use of digital platforms affect our thinking, perception, experiences, and our relationships with others. We will address censorship and deplatforming in social media, the egocentrism and narcissism propagated through the mythology of ourselves that we curate on these platforms, and the zombification of the masses through the use of these devices. How are you doing today, Mr. Jinji? Doing well, man. How are you doing? I am well. So what's your take on the digital era and how our life in the digital form and on digital platforms is affecting us? Well, first off, uh, I would like to say that I don't think anybody is immune from this because for instance, there's been a few documentaries that have been released on Netflix, and uh, one of them talks about Cambridge Analytica. And hold on, sorry. And uh, they talk about how they can't really manipulate everybody using, like, they get a certain amount of data points on somebody, and they can sort of affect or impact their their decision making process or push them one degree, you know, left or right. And some people this just doesn't work on. Like they, they're not um, impressionable or, you know, subliminal messaging or influence to really affect their behavior. And I'm not exactly sure why, but there is a large enough percentage that are, say, undecided on a topic like an election that they are able to swing the undecided, the influenceable amount of people enough to affect major outcomes. And the, what, the way they described it was like taking an entire table and tilting it one degree. Like you're going to get some people falling off. You're going to get some people shifting. Some may not move at all, but it's just enough to create an advantage. And... They, I mean, the lady in that, they talked about how she's like, we're directly responsible for Trump's election, for Brexit, for some of the wars that were going on in some other countries. Um, and most recently, there was another documentary that came out and talked about how social media in particular, their algorithms are created and perfected to influence decisions. Like, because you like this and this and this and this and this and this, we're going to show you this because you're highly likely to, to want it. And in one sense, it's like, awesome, I'm getting ads that I actually care about. And in the other sense, it's like, I'm being manipulated manipulated based off what I care about. <laughs> well, that also creates the effect I call um, echo chambering, where yeah. an individual who's prone to think in certain ways and or prone to certain ideologies is actually you create a positive feedback loop with the information you're feeding to them based on their interests and other things, other information that you're collecting on them. And it creates a polarization where now they have, they're not really given uh, a, a, 
information on a spectrum. They're given information that is very much tailored to create this positive feedback loop that keeps them kind of going down the rabbit hole in the direction they were already heading. So it, it takes away from uh, opposing ideas, being exposed to ideas or concepts or information that may contradict your way of thinking or information that you are prone to access and things like that. So there's that echo chambering that's definitely there. Right. Um, I also wanted to really uh, not only focus on the how how your thinking is affected, meaning like it, 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 like the what you were just talking about, like your your uh, relationship to certain information. But I also want to touch on um, like our our capacity to think. Uh, because I feel like that it's, it affects us in that way as well. Um, like right now, people are spending more and more hours on their devices. And is it affecting thinking? Period. Because like, if all you're doing is receiving information and then regurgitating information, um, are you thinking? You know, and how much thinking are you doing? Are, are you... Are you analyzing this information are you uh or are you just absorbing it and regurgitating it as well as um i definitely want to also get into social media and how there's this in my my assessment my opinion there's this movement of people towards uh narcissism towards egocentrism that People have, and, and I mean, we have an entire generations now that have grown up with their life online, right? Um, like, I there was no internet until I was well out of high school, out of college. So I have an entire part of my life I lived where there was no internet and there was no creating an image of yourself and portraying that as who you were through Facebook or any other social media. And now there are people who have lived their entire lives where the image of themselves that they portray and curate on these social platforms is who they believe themselves to be, who they believe others to be, and who they portray themselves and, and how people uh, perceive them and how they project themselves through these platforms. And, and because there's entire generations that have grown up with this, there is no distinction between the authentic self and the mythology of self, right? The curated self. Yeah, the curated self, right? So it's, uh, I definitely want to get into that as well because I feel like that that may be even more detrimental um, to, to, to the people, to our thinking, because it has us caught up in an image of ourselves as opposed to, being able to be authentic and genuine with people and being able to be authentic and genuine with ourselves. Um, so that's something to consider as well. Uh, the, so the main point that I was making in that first statement is that even if you're not manipulated by devices, by social media, by algorithms in general, 
the world around you is being. And I mean, it, it has been to an extent for, for as long as I can remember, like commercials. Everybody was talking about subliminal messaging and you know, like demonic uh, seances or, or, or language being used, played in reverse on other people's records and stuff like that. Like this, these are concepts that have been around forever. And now it's just very much in our face. Uh, yeah, we're doing that to make money. We're trying to sell you something. And we know what you like. Like what? Uh, there's a statistic in that movie I was talking about, which I don't remember the name of it right now. But she said we only really need about 17 data points on an individual in order to manipulate the outcome of behavior. And right now, Facebook has like over 500 data points on everybody on their platform. <laughs> that that is significant. I mean, even if that number is you know, 100% or 50% uh, over what it actually is, blown out of proportion, that's that's still way more than they need to, to affect outcomes. So talking about whether or not you're individually affected, I think is uh, irrelevant because either you are or you aren't. But the world around us, what we're seeing, what's being created, what's being perpetuated and exaggerated, is happening whether or not an individual is being impacted. And I know some people are like, it's almost like the world is going crazy. So like, for instance, the other day I was hanging out with a couple of friends and they got into an argument. One of them was like, oh yeah, dude, nobody's voting for Donald Trump. There's no way he can win this one. I looked at him curiously and then someone else said, oh no, 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 you got it backwards, Biden. There's no way anyone's gonna vote for Trump. Everybody hates that dude. Right. And it's the two bubbles that they live in Never having heard of anybody else voting in opposition to what they've been fed. Right. All of a sudden, they're like, what? You must be the first person <laughs> that I'm hearing about that that is going to vote in a different direction or that hangs out with people that might vote in a different direction. And that's what's going on. People right. that like certain things are all of a sudden surrounded by, by those things. Mm -hmm. And they can't see past those things. Right. I noticed a huge difference when I when I jumped off of at least Facebook this year. It was like, oh, I'll just take a month off or something. It was like I could then see, what do you call them, like the eddy currents and the little whirlpools and the streams of information where people just sit and bathe and absorb. Right. It's Especially with coronavirus and everything going on. Everybody's operating with different information. Right. And that's all people are, are getting is a source of information here and here and here and here. And all the facts are inconsistent. And, and I, I don't know, you, your point that there are people above and beyond the influence of, let, let's say, the digital world. I think that may be a little naive. I don't know if there's anyone that's beyond the influence of... The digital world, um, whether that influence comes in the form of social media, there's no doubt that people are operating their lives nowadays with a computer, with access to the internet, right at their side, 24 hours a day. I mean, think about this. When you were a kid, because you're, you're not as old as me, but you're older. When you were a kid, how many phone numbers did you have to look up to call someone? Every single one, except for like the five I memorized. Right. How many do you have memorized now? 
those same five. <laughs> no, I learned my girlfriend's number just because we're like, in case of emergency, she still doesn't know my number, but I know hers. Right. That's the only one I've learned since probably high See, school. See, I never had to look up anyone's number. I knew all my friends that I called on a regular basis. I knew my home phone. Like, I knew people in my family. If I call them on a fairly regular basis, I knew those numbers. And so you would just pick up the phone and dig, 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 or... Right. Right. Um, the rotor. <laughs> so, but it was, you just, you memorized all these things. And the same with like. I did. After like a week or two, I'd know that person's number by right. heart. And then. T- like, I even knew my bank state, like my bank account numbers by heart. Right. And take, and I mean, take just like maybe even meaningless information, but information nonetheless that, you know, when you had conversations with people, you would be able to call upon information, whether you had learned it in school, whether you had learned it in some other means, but you'd be able to recall information. Now you always have Google in your pocket. And so how much is it affecting memory? Because we no longer have to recall information. We could just pull out a device and search and go, oh yeah, what was the name of that guy in that movie? IMDB. Boom. There he is. <laughs> you know, like, like now, yeah. So it's, we've become reliant on the digital world to, for our memory. So we don't, we, are we exercising our recall capacity with our memory or are we relying on digital devices and digital platforms for not only memory, but for our thinking as well? Like, uh, at least math and other basic functions like spelling, like my spelling and handwriting has gone downhill Mm -hmm. and my math, my skills have gone downhill since I think I got a smartphone and whenever those came out, I no longer like right now I can grab my phone and open up the calculator and do the math right there. Not only that on an iPhone, you can just say, Hey Siri, what's seven times 802. (laughs) And there it is regurgitates it right back. Or, hey, how many miles is it from here to so-and-so's house? Like, it still boggles my mind how people would drive across the country with a paper map. Right. How do you know where you are on that piece of paper? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, the Thomas Guide. I, we, I used to always have a Thomas Guide in my car, and the Thomas Guide was basically a map of the county. I actually had Orange County and Los Angeles County because, you know, when, when you live in Southern California, you're, quite often you're going across county lines into LA, into Riverside. Um, but it was, uh, that's the only way there was to find where you were going. And a lot of times you were memorizing most of the way to get there because you couldn't be, you couldn't have a book (laughs) with a map on it in front of you while you're driving. Whereas now you could just set your phone up, type in the the location where you're going and and you don't even have to look at it. It'll tell you, make a left, (laughs) make a right. Um, so again, and you can still access right? those assistants and be like, hey, how do I get to the rec center? Right. Like, oh, jump in the car, go east, make a left. Right. Like, oh, cool. So, Which way is east? You're facing it. Right. Thanks. And there's actually been several studies done where it's there's clear indication that um, the, the, our dependence on these devices is affecting our capacity to problem solve, it's affecting our memory um, and things like that. So that being the case, um, what do we do about it? You know, 
Well, what about kids in school? Because it's easy to look at, like, I never have to retain anything being a graduate or out of school in general. But I do remember a lot of time, they're like, here's all the information you need to know to pass this class. And I would go through and spend, like, the night or the week before any test cramming information into my head Mm. and holding it until I got in there and put it all onto the paper and it's like as soon as I walked out of the room, <clears throat> I forgot all of it. Yeah. Like you could ask me the next day, I wouldn't be able to answer. I wouldn't be able to get half the grade I got on that test the next day. Different people retain information differently. Um, that was never an issue for me. Like I was blown away. I had a girlfriend in high school, and you know she was all honors classes, all AP classes, and she had zero retention of anything. Kind of like how you're talking about. And I remember having a conversation with her one time in, about biology, right? And she was currently in biology, and I was a couple years ahead of her, so I had taken biology a couple years back. And I started talking to me what were basic concepts of, of biology. I'm like, wait, don't you know this? You're in biology right now. <laughs> like, how do you not know this? And, and she, again, she was a straight-A student. She could study like you did, like you were talking about how you would retain yeah. the information and then you would regurgitate it on the page, and then it's all gone. Um, I, that's it's like I got really good at taking tests, but not learning information. See, I, I'm. This may just be the way that I function. I, when information's coming to me, I'm constructing a why, so that there's an understanding of the information. I'm not, I'm not memorizing information. So, like for instance, in math, right? It wasn't, for me, it wasn't memorizing equations. It was why. Like, why is the volume of a cylinder the equation that it is? And it's like, okay, well, you get the area of the circle, you multiply it by the height, and that makes sense. So it's okay, 2 pi r squared times height. So there's an understanding. I don't have to memorize that equation. The formula. Dude, and right. I, I don't even know if I just got it right, but... <laughs> That, that's that's what I remember about the error. The, the two pi r squared made sense because of the relationship of pi to the circle. So that wasn't something I had to remember. And then multiplying it by the height. That So there was, I constructed an understanding around things. So I didn't have to memorize data. It was, as information came in, I kind of constructed a context for it within my own head. Interesting. And so I, I retained things. And I retained things pretty well. And I always have. I'm realizing that I do that too, but only for shit I care exactly. about. Exactly. And, and I'm the same <laughs> like way. Like in school, I may get information like... on television or something, but if it's, if it's meaningless to me, I'm not doing that. I'm not constructing a context for it. So it's like in one ear, out the other. And, and sometimes it's about the concept of something. I'll remember the concept or a principle or even a, let's say a quote or a saying, like some piece of wisdom but I don't remember who said it, when they said it, where they were, when they said it. Like to me, the right. important aspect is, is the concept there. So I'll remember the concept, but I won't be able to attribute it to him, um, which is much the case in my, in my practice of philosophy is like, I've studied a lot of philosophy by a lot of different people, but I couldn't tell you who said what, when necessarily. Like now there are some that I'm like, oh yeah, this is this this philosopher and this philosopher, and this is their principles. And these are, you know, distinctly opposing principles from this other philosopher. I I remember some, 
But to me, that's not the important stuff as a thinker because I'm not, I'm not attached to being a cert, under a certain school of philosophy or, or perpetuating or propagating a certain or a particular philosophy. For me, it's an exercise in thinking and in problem solving that this is useful, this isn't that useful. I agree with this. I don't really agree with this. And so I incorporate different philosophies and they become part of my philosophy, but I'm not necessarily wrapped up or concerned with who said what when. So let's let's talk about that. Why is that important to do? Because, for instance, I, I listened to a Joe Rogan podcast with Neil deGrasse Tyson on it. Uh-huh. Joe Rogan's like, so, man, there's this thing I wanted to ask you. Nobody knows what gravity is but everyone can explain what gravity does. Why don't we know what it is yet? Right. We've had decades upon decades of knowing how it works. And so Neil deGrasse Tyson went into, well, knowing what it is doesn't land us on the moon. Knowing how it works <laughs> does. Right. Like it's applicable. We can use how it works in, in our lives. He's like, you can go and do all the philosophical, this is what gravity is and where it came from. And, you know, later on down the line, it's, you know, the bending of the space-time continuum of a mass. And he's like, yeah, that's all great and stuff, but we didn't need to know that for <laughs> going to the moon. Right. So why, why is it important to graft an understanding of what something is, how it works, and, and just the full scope of a topic? Well, for me, it... And, and I feel like the reason why I dissect and integrate information the way that I do is I see it as useful in solving problems and figuring things out and, and understanding things. It's the way my mind works, the way I work is I, I'm, I place a high value on understanding the nature and character. So just getting information isn't enough for me. I have to understand the whys and the hows and what's behind it. And so that's probably why I retain as much as I do is because of my relationship with information. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I, I am actually concerned and I've actually got philosophies around gravity that don't necessarily fit in science because it's not enough for me personally to know how it works. I do want to understand what's behind it. So I've got, that's a, something else for another time on another show, but it's another podcast. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not related <laughs> to this, but it's, uh, but it is, it's just, it, I guess that's my relationship with information. Um, it, because it's, it's something that works for me in problem solving and at, in philosophy, because I am, a constant student of philosophy. So I'm always looking for ways to think and ways to think about things and ways to understand things. So again, that's one of the, my defining features is seeking to understand things. So why is that important? Does that I don't help know you retain information? It more? does help me retain information more. Um, like, like I just spit out the, the, uh, formula for the volume of a cylinder. So if I needed to figure out the volume of a cylinder, I could without going into Google, you know, to figure it out. Um, right. So it's useful in that. And because I also like to fabricate things, 
you know, with metal and, and things like that, it's it's a useful tool. Trigonometry, like trigonometry never landed for me until I started building things. Like in school, I had a really hard time wrapping my head around the purpose and point of trigonometry. I'm like, like why, why would I ever need to figure out the angle <laughs> like, of this weird shape? You know, like I, I'm just, it, if I couldn't apply it to something, it, I couldn't construct thinking around it. And it wasn't until I got into college and I took a, a math course called, uh, what was it? Uh, finite math, which was taking concepts of calculus and trigonometry and geometry and algebra and things like that and applying it to real world situations, you know, where you're actually solving a problem, a real world problem using it. And my trigonometry teacher in high school, he's just like, regurgitating shit here, memorize this, memorize that, memorize this, memorize that. So for me, it wasn't until I was solving real problems and building things that the law of signs had any meaning to me. Up until that point, the law of sign had no purpose in my life. It had no, there was no place for it. So I didn't know it. I didn't need to know it. But then when I actually started building things, I'm like, oh, well, I want this at this angle, but I need to know how to cut my metal here so that when I weld it together, it kind of finishes it out right. So now I have to figure out an angle. I don't know, but I do know this length and I do know this length and I, and I might know this angle here, but now the law of signs is useful because it's like I need to, because I'm pre-cutting all my pieces before I start welding them together, I need to understand exactly how to cut it, what angle to cut it at, how long the long edge of the piece be, needs to be, how long the short edge of the piece needs to be with the angles cut in it. So it became useful. And so I now, now my understanding of the law of signs has been solidified. So now there's, because there's understanding behind it, it's not just a, an equation, right? It's, there's more to it than that. So I, I, I had to first take my relationship with the information, right? What the equation is and the relationship of these mathematical concepts like sine and cosine and tangent and things like that and angles and, and their relationships to those and be able to construct an understanding so that it is, is retained within my thought process. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that I feel like, at least for me, I feel like we might be heading off subject here. But see, <laughs> <laughs> so I I think for me, the understanding the context of something, and this is kind of me bringing it back full circle, is not even the context. Well, it it does make it does provide context. Understanding what something is or why it works, like gravity. It gives a deeper understanding of its nature and its functions and broad scope so that it can be related and understood at a deeper level. Like to, to get into the math and do all the tests to figure out how gravity works, yeah, you can then use that high-level intellect to really work up here. But if you understand the fundamentals of it, you don't need to go through all the brainiac stuff. Right. Yeah. You can get to the core of the issue and it becomes simplified. Right. It becomes more potent, more impactful. Right. That's and so if that's how I felt about when I finally got to calculus, 
That's how I felt about mathematics. It was like, okay, why aren't we starting here? Because this is the foundation of these other mathematics. And if I learned algebra from the standpoint of understanding why, why, why equals mx plus b, well, then I don't have to memorize that equation, you know, the right. slope intercept. The letters are irrelevant. Yeah, because I understand how to get the equation, just like in geometry. So in geometry, it's not about memorizing an equation. It's understanding the, what's beneath it, what's behind it, and same with trigonometry. So it's like, why don't we start with the foundations of advanced mathematics so that we can formulate these things for ourselves as opposed to memorizing? So it, when, I, when I got to higher levels of math, I, I felt, this is my opinion, that they were teaching mathematics backwards because when you understand the, the fundamentals, the foundations, and how to, how to generate these equations as opposed to memorizing them, you have a much deeper understanding of the subject. You have a much deeper understanding of that allows you to problem solve and to figure things out as opposed to memorizing. But again, nowadays, or be we, we now live in a world where it's like, just type it in. What, what is it you're trying to figure out? And you can find any and every equation. You can find every concept that relates to the problem you're trying to solve. So we're not retaining as much, which kind of gets into this whole. Well, also the, the full circle that I was coming back to with that huh. is that the, the black mirror concept, right. if you don't understand the nature of what's happening, the why's behind it, why is social media the way that it is? Right. Why is advertising? Why is, why do screens work the way that they do? Understanding these aspects, you can understand how you're involved in them. You don't need to say like, is blue light bad for my eyes? Right. And then a formula says 78% yes. Like, oh, good. 78%. I can move forward and I can use that information. Right. Understanding the nature of why blue light's not bad for your eyes. It just doesn't it'll exactly allow your body to create melatonin and fall asleep right. easy so it's, and blah, it's, blah, blah. Yeah, it's not, it's oh, not the so effect. don't do it before yeah, bed. Yeah, it's not the effect <laughs> on the eyes. It's the effect on your hormones. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So understanding the deeper, the, the layers foundational to what's going on allows you to move between and see, oh, what else is good for my sleep or my hormones or whatever else, and actually work at that foundational level to be more impactful. With screens and Siri and Google and all these other things, I don't have to critically think anymore. I, I, it's a choice. Right. I can just say, Google, tell me exactly what this means or this means or what's this equation or what's this answer. And it just comes to me. So I don't need to know the underlying issue. Right. I don't have to know trigonometry or calculus or math in general anymore. I just ask my phone. I just Google it. What do these numbers mean? Oh, 72. Got it. Boom. Right. And move forward. Right. So we're, we're losing the automatic go-to of that deeper understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and so I... Now extracurricular. Right. And, <laughs> and so now, now that I, I see where you're going with it... Um, I like this angle of approach that you've proposed because it's not necessarily that the black mirror is a bad thing, right? It's that defining our relationship and understanding our relationship with it and maybe understanding 
the digital platforms, the digital devices at a deeper level will change our relationship with it such that it doesn't become detrimental to us as human beings. Because some other measurements that they've come up with in, uh, in, in digital device usage is like a lack of empathy, right? And, and a lot of this comes from gaming, right? So people who play a lot of, uh, what do they call them? Is it first person shooter? Is that, is that the right term? First. That is the term for like Call of Duty. Right, okay. So games like that affect people's empathy because in the game, actually you, you used the term the other day when you're poning noobs, right? Is that something you do? You pwn noobs. And so Yeah, but I would say Grand Theft Auto gets rid of more empathy than Call of Duty. Right. Because you're actually free roaming around a city and like, oh, I wonder how many stars I can get against the police. I don't, I don't know about the new stuff, because you can take on full on like I'm gonna be a police officer and I can't go and break the law and I can't speed and I can't whatever else. Otherwise it'll impact my career as whatever. Right. It's it's it is leading the way for alternative reality, straight up. You can live an entire alternative live life inside that game now. And I was going to, I mean, anyway, that, that's a whole no, no, other but, rant. But, but to bring it back to the point you were making and the angle you were taking to this subject is by having an awareness and a presence to that these types of games can affect how I relate to others, that empathy, right? So being conscious of it, being aware of it, and being able to presence for yourself and empathy for others as an exercise, you know, as so that you are countering the effect that playing these games may have on you, right? It's like a muscle. It's, it's not that playing the game will remove empathy. It's that it gives you the opportunity to not utilize empathy. Right. And so then if you're not utilizing it somewhere else in your life, like I was saying, I only really embodied information in school of things I cared about. It's because on one side, I'm, I'm learning like the history of, you know, this archaeological whatever that I didn't care about. And it's not even going into the archaeology of it. It's like the history of these discoveries and how they've come to. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> For example, the history of music. And I had to go back and listen to all of these different artists and everything else. And it was an elective that I thought would be interesting. Hated it. I did just enough in there to memorize just enough to pass. Got my C and I was out of there. But then on the other side of music, I had to learn like music theory. That was incredibly important to me. Right. And, and especially as like a music performance major. So then I, I blew up in that section and I did embody it. I memorized it. I had to recite like verbally the notes of every single seventh chord, which is four notes in the seventh chord in under three seconds. So it'd be like, what's a B flat half diminished chord. And I have to be like, bam, 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 three seconds. That's what I got. And that became easy for me. And I was able to just like, cause I cared about it. So at least I was using compassion, not compassion, but like, uh, like passion <laughs> and excitement and and like rigor and drive and my memory and all that stuff in an area. So it's not that taking the other classes were a detriment it, because I was still using it somewhere else. So as long as you're still using empathy with your family, with your friends, you know, going around in the world, 
you're still strengthening and utilizing that muscle and it won't atrophy. But if all you do is play video games that don't require critical thinking or retention of information or empathy or any of these other things, and that's where you live nine-tenths of your life, all those muscles will atrophy. You won't have those skill sets anymore. And so that's understanding the nature of what's going on. If you don't use it, you'll lose it type of thing. Okay. Then you can be intentional with it. Right, right. Okay, let's move on to another aspect of this because I feel like I really want to cover all, all these different elements, all these different aspects of, okay. of the effects of the digital world. Um, I would say the next for me that's uh, maybe the most significant aspect, we'll see as we move through the discussion on it. I... I word this as the propagation and the curating of the mythology of ourselves, Um, the image, right? And this is through primarily through social media, especially social media platforms like Facebook, where you curate an image of yourself and you start to believe the image of yourself. You start to, you're selling this image of yourself to others Others buy into your image and then sell you their image. Now, I'm not saying that this is done on a conscious level or an intentional level that like, hey, I'm, I'm out to fake everyone out of who I am. You start, you believe your image, you know, and, and then and, and as, a, as like a reciprocation, you believe in other people's images. And I believe that this is extremely detrimental because for one, it eliminates acceptance of ourselves and the capacity for authenticity, right? And I believe that that is a really important aspect. Um, and then on the other side, and what we're seeing is now we live in a, an era where like suicide rates are at the highest they've ever been, especially for these kids that are growing up exclusively in this world where they're, since they were, 10 years old, they've had a device and curated an image and been selling images and buying images. So there's like a disconnect from authenticity in the authentic world and, and other people's authentic selves, right? Um, as well as at all age levels, a higher rate of uh, dependency on uh, medicating through uh, you know, legal means um, pharmaceuticals and things like that, as well as other means of self-medication for coping. Um, so there's a high level of anxiety and depression as well. And I posit that there's a relationship there because of the, the belief in the image or that you should be the image that you're portraying and the either the subconscious or the conscious realization that that's, that's not who you are. And, and for those of us who grew up in a time where there was no internet and there was no Facebook and we had to deal with who we really were and how people perceived us without being able to dress it up and create a, a, a straw man of ourselves and put it out there as like, hey, that's me. Um, we've, perhaps we've got tools in dealing with rejection and dejection and exposure of our authentic selves that at least experience. Yeah. It. We've, we've got the experience of it. Right. And, and, uh, and, but now you have an entire generation of people growing up where 
they don't have that. All they've ever had is this curated version of themselves that is, as soon as there's some uh, puncture in the, in that bubble of the image of themselves, that there that there's a a, a profound experience of hurt or rejection, rejection. yeah, a, a non-acceptance, right? And so it's, uh, how do we address this? How do we, how, because it, now I'm not saying that my generation is, uh, is immune to this because, hey man, if I go on Facebook, all the people I went to high school with, even my parents and their generation, they're all caught up in selling their image of themselves as well. So how much of it is, you know, real attachment to the image and a disconnect between the image and the authentic self. Um, and there's this exchange, which not only happens in the digital realm, this does happen in the real world as well, because people, you know, on, uh, let's say socially, right They're the acquaintances we often call them. This is something that's been occurring for probably as long as there's been human beings is that yeah. We we generate an image of ourselves. We project this image of ourselves and we hope that others buy into the image of ourselves. And then to reciprocate, we buy the image of other people. And I, you know, when I did trainings and stuff around this particular piece, this particular subject, it was like, Hey, I'll buy your bullshit. If you buy my bullshit was like my, my simplistic way of kind of spelling it out. Um, and again, not, not that this is a bad thing or in a bad way, but it does, create this it's not an inability but it's a a failure to be authentic and a fear of being authentic which also will create a fear in being honest right because now what we say we want people to like us for as opposed to just honestly expressing our opinion if we're in a group of people and we've gauged where these people's opinions and preferences and things like that lie, we may say something just to appease our perceived uh, ideal of what they like and what they want, as opposed to just speaking from a place of authenticity and being authentic. We start to tailor our image and that's all social media is, you know, whereas in a real life person-to-person -person interaction there we do at times let down our guard so to speak especially with people that we're more comfortable with people that we've known longer we allow that image to subside and we're able to step into authenticity which is probably very therapeutic in the sense that we're not caught up in the stress and anxiety of maintaining an image of ourselves we can be ourselves we can be our authentic selves and therefore we have a much, uh, a much more pleasurable or a positive experience with people that we're close to, right? Because we're not trying to maintain an image of who we are with these people. Um, and now we're at this point in our culture where people are living a not all people, but a lot of people are living a majority of their lives through digital platforms. And therefore, there's never really the 
that experience of being able to just be your authentic self and be authentic with others and accept others for their authenticity. It's constantly curating the image and constantly buying the image of others. And that I believe is extremely detrimental in human relationships is that lack of authenticity. It can be. And it's, it's funny because the people that are really making money with branding and pushing their image right. are, are authentic. <laughs> They're the ones that don't give a shit. Like, I'm just out here anyway doing my thing, man. And people are like, oh, awesome. Finally, with something right. refreshing, someone being original. Right. That's, that's a big thing in, in the game of branding to get noticed and to become successful is you've got, like, you've got to polarize people. People are going to love you or they're going to hate you or everyone's just going to feel lukewarm about you, which doesn't make any money. Right. So it's, it's funny to try to curate an image and put it out there as PC as possible and try to make it impactful. It just, it doesn't quite work. Yeah, but that's, it's also now I'm remember I'm talking about the masses that are using social media. Not everyone using social media is branding themselves and selling something. I mean, but other than their image, in a way. <laughs> they're, they're selling their like, image. That's exactly what's happening. <laughs> they're saying, hey, check it out. I've got an awesome family. Here's the best parts of my life. <laughs> right. Buy it. Believe that I'm successful. Believe that I'm happy. Believe whatever. No one's saying like, okay, there are people that do this. And how many of them get unfriended? The ones that are like, guys, I'm having such a hard day. You know, my third dog this week died. My seventh grandmother, oh, it's just the worst, you know, like seventh always complaining about I'm exaggerating to make it not personal. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? That person that's like, uh, how many grandmothers does this person have? Right. How many times are you going to cry over the death of your no, grandma? But, that's, but that is part of an image. Like even the, exactly. I mean, their go-to may be to be in a, a place of misery and discontent. And, but they're, what are they getting, right? What they're getting is sympathy. Right. So that may be just there outside of the digital world. And in the real world, they, they have the same type of behavior where they're constantly in a negative place. Right. And same with people who are constantly in a positive place. Right. And they're always selling you the I'm happy all the time and everything is awesome all the time. So there are people who sell both images because they get something different out of it, you know, do there even the people that say like, oh, look, Instagram models, they look this way. They're all curated and, you know, they're up like this and their stomach's in and their butt's out and they're smiling and all of this stuff. And so they're like Instagram photo and the girl looks like, quote unquote, drop dead gorgeous. And then on the other side, they're like reality. And she's like flexed over, hunched over like this with her gut sticking out and like whatever. And they're like reality of it. But then you see her live videos and she's halfway between both of those images right. <laughs> and neither one of them were the reality. Right. Like they were both poses. Right. And they that's were both image. that's image. Right. And that, I mean, that speaks to also, I mean, think about this. We have a phenomenon in our society known as the selfie, right? So at the beginning, <laughs> I talked about the narcissism and the egocentrism that comes about through this you know, curating an image of ourselves. Could you imagine now? I, like, again, if I go back to the eighties, right? If I saw someone, you know, back then we didn't have digital cameras. So somebody would have to hold out their little 
disposable, you know, <laughs> uh, thrifty or th- uh, liquor store camera and like smiling at it and taking a Turn picture. It around yeah, like and aim you'd, it you'd just think right. that person was insane. You would like, what in the world is that person doing? Taking a picture of themselves with the disposable camera, like, or, or having a stick that the camera stuck on so that they could hold it out far enough and get a picture, you know? Um, but it has become such an embedded part of our culture that nobody thinks anything of it, that the, that people are taking pictures of themselves in their bathroom mirrors or holding out their phones and taking mm, pictures of themselves. I don't know, man. People do. There's an entire Instagram page, which is probably my favorite Instagram page in the world. It's called uh, Influencers in the Wild. (laughs) It's literally just third person filming like a girl sticking her butt out and trying to get a perfect shot. Or someone with a tripod at the beach doing TikTok dances. (laughs) It's, it's, It's so fucking funny. And there's even been people that have been like, oh shit that's me here's the actual video and like we'll link to their page so you can see what it looks like while they're recording it and then after it's curated right it is the best thing out there because it really shows like the authentic the the authenticity of what's happening right there's some weirdo pulling her underwear up her butt and jiggling herself at the beach that most guys are gonna see and be like whoa sweet twerking and they're gonna like (laughs) like it or respond and say hey hit up your dms like what's up are you gonna you done to hang out (laughs) but then you show it's like just her with a camera up her butt like doing some weird gyrations on the beach by herself with like her two kids next to her on the other blanket (laughs) (laughs) like the reality of it is not ever what the image of it is whether it's better or worse or anything it's the curation that's what we're looking at. Right. So I and do not I the... do see a value in that because at some level Definitely. it's like don't take yourself too serious. You know, uh if if you are prone to selfie yourself, <laughs> don't take yourself too serious. Don't get caught up in the image you're curating and perpetuating and selling to others. You know, uh and so the the account or whatever you just described that's exposing these real aspects of the of 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 creating right the the process of production to get to these uh image takes right whether they're photos or videos or whatever else um it it allows you to be in a, a to to see it and to see it for its for the ridiculousness of it so that you don't take it too serious. You don't take yourself too serious, which I believe can be uh, valuable in that if you take yourself too serious, especially the image of yourself too serious, when there is a puncture in the image, you're not as traumatized by it. You can. Well, here's the issue that I see that arises from this is like the addictive nature of, say, Instagram specifically. Mm-hmm. How many comments do these people read? Not really that many. How many like hearts or whatever or or forwards or I don't even know what they're called anymore. But how many interactions to a post somebody gets, they will feel a certain way. And so imagine being somebody that posts content 
And then one day you post something extra curated and you get a higher engagement. Right. And you're like, ooh, okay. And you go back to doing what you're doing. You're like, wow, none of these are really doing it for anybody. And so it, you start to develop this need to people please. So you more curation, more curation, more curation, right. more engagement until like you're really putting yourself through hell trying to curate something to get a bigger engagement from a group. And then you get this sense that the curated aspects of you or the curated perspective of you right. is worth more than the, your authentic self. Right. And that's where you start to get in danger a little bit. Right. You're like, oh, well, if it's just a business, like, oh, I'm just making a product to sell people, then yeah, you're making things to let go and it doesn't say anything about who you are. Right. Yes. And, but and, as soon as you identify those two right. and you're like, ooh, this part of me is better. Well, again, now you're in you, you get you wrap your self value up in the image of yourself. And this is definitely, uh, I would say one of the aspects of social media and the curated image, I'll call it, that can be the most detrimental to people, especially in their sense of well-being. And, uh, and it is this, this cycle of feedback that you get, right? So if I, take the time. And like you said, I, you know, I, I, I create this image of myself through a selfie or whatever else. And I put it out there and I only get half the number of likes I was expecting. Oh, I mean, what kind of devastation do these people go through if they get no likes and no comments, right? Cause again, this is something that I see a lot of people wrapping their self-worth in. And it's like, it's expected if a, if a, a woman does the duck face and takes a picture of herself or especially if she's wearing a bikini or something it's i imagine there's an expectation in the comment like oh you're so cute you're so beautiful oh my god amazing blah blah you know and it's all this feedback and all the thumbs ups and the hearts and the smiley faces and the kissy faces and whatever else right but that's you gauging your self-worth based on people's response to it, right? And what your expectations of response are, right? What if the only response you got was get over yourself? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like how would that affect a person's ego in that moment if the only feedback they got was a thumbs down and a get over yourself? You see? And this is... Well, this is something that's been going on for a long time. We've just made it very public and addicting with the notifications, with the hearts, with the, the loving and the feedback, really the engagement that you get. But think about it, You call any, like, say, real estate office. Hi, this is Sherry. How's it going? And you call the next one. Hi, this is Sam. How's it going? They all speak the same way. There's like this public service persona language that gets put out there the thing is as soon as you like you leave like oh, this motherfucker man i can't believe you wanted to look at it and they go right into their normal language newscasters do this so there's there's this awesome video on youtube about this like you can tell he's from like deep south alabama black dude type of thing and he's like in a suit and he's like and then we had so many things and blah blah blah, blah. and he's like doing his very professional speaking voice and a fly flies in his mouth. And he goes, ah, 
the fuck am I doing out here in this country ass <laughs> fucked up town, man? <laughs> he starts going off about this like a buckle in my goddamn mouth and back to you, Ben. We'll have more after six. Right. <laughs> like there is no attachment to that personality. It's like politeness. Or like I'm just gonna put this up there to kind of massage engagement with people. And now we've taken that, like I'm gonna engage with people in a social media way well, or on an online way. But now I'm getting feedback. From yeah, it, I was gonna getting, say it's. But as soon as there's like, what's feedback, that, what's that or as soon as there's dopamine. negative feedback, it it does it does matter because you you regardless of the image that you're portraying, you're going to take it personal. So even if the newscaster or whoever is, they may not be attached to being that way all the time. They realize that part of my job is to be this way on the phone or to be this way in front of the camera or whatever else. But as soon as like, if what you get is, is negative feedback, you all of a sudden you have wrapped up your self-worth in that image. You see, because now you're getting negative feedback. So you can't say, well, yeah, they just don't like my telephone answering voice or they just don't like my newscaster persona or whatever else. It, you can't, at that point, there is no separation from it. So yes, I do agree that people aren't necessarily attached to the image in a way that they can't not be that or show up that way all the time. They can let that image go. But it's even even if they realize like this is a complete act, right? Like I'm going to pretend to be something or someone I'm not. Like even if it's intentional and it's and 99.9% of the time, it's not at that level of intentionality. It's not like, oh, I'm fabricating a persona so that people, you know what I mean? It's more of a subconscious thing that we are gauging what people around us respond positively to positively to. And then we try to, and then we embody those, those aspects that we believe people respond positively to. And then we just start to play them out again, not necessarily on an intentional level. This, I would imagine that a lot of this happens subconsciously that people are unaware that they're, that they're curating the image and that they're perpetuating an image that it's just, it's a subconscious thing to feel good. Like you said, the dopamine release, right? If I get thumbs ups and, oh my God, you'd look amazing on my Facebook post, there's a dopamine release, right? Get over yourself. No, it doesn't. The, the get over yourself will not have the same impact and neither will the down, the thumbs down, right? Rewarded. I mean, unless you're into that. Right. Right. Like there are some people that post to offend and to like trolls they're, they're called trolls yeah <laughs> <laughs> like there's a word for these people yes and so and it's interesting because there's there i mean there's a culture of trolling right so so and again this and this is where the this these generations that's a persona as well yeah and these generations that are growing up with nothing but this image and then all of a sudden they get trolled and and oftentimes they're getting trolled by people they know. You know, a, a dude, you you remember being a teenager. You remember being in high school. And it's funny because walking in and being like, "Man, I'm I'm the shit today. I'm feeling good." And someone's like, "Look at this fucking guy. He thinks he's cool. Yeah, yeah. Ah, fucking well, asshole. Well, you know better than us." That's part of being a teenager. It's funny because when I used yeah. to do youth the youth trainings, right? 
Um, I'd say, okay, so for the first myth I want to dispel, your parents have been telling you all that these are the best years of your lives. They are liars. (laughs) These are not the best years of your lives. Trust me, it gets better, you know, because in the teenage years, years. that's when you're starting to form this image of your, but you've gotten into this place of self-awareness and self-worth. And so you start to construct an image of yourself and teenagers can be the cruelest and I'm yeah. saying cruel, <laughs> C-R, right? Cruelest people on the planet because they're going to completely deconstruct and burst your bubble and like just tear you apart because they know that it's an image that you're attempting to portray because they're doing the same thing. So it's like everyone's in, everyone sees what everyone else is doing. And so you just start to slam each other. Right. And so it's like you're trying to. And there's like a complete disconnect. There's like a complete disconnect from like my actions and someone else's response and like a lack of responsibility. Like there's there's this one dude from my high school. I remember he asked this girl out and he dated her just to see how long he could go without talking to her before she broke up with him. (laughs) A social experiment. It lasted a week, and he's like running out the door on a Friday, and she's like, "Hey, I'm breaking up with you." And he's like, "Sure, five days. That's all I got." <laughs> he was hoping to get to like ten or twenty days or a month or something like that. I'm like, no thought to if if this was going to like emotionally traumatize her right. <laughs> in the in the future or anything else. And that, that to me is like being a teenager, right? Like you fuck around, you make risks. Shit is just funny and offensive, and it. And if you're online, it's just like zoomed in. Right. Like it wouldn't surprise me if if some teenager was just like, "What do you guys want to do to this studio tonight or something?" They're like, I don't know. Let's get online and make someone cry. Absolutely, absolutely. That's. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there's an entire there is an entire culture of trolling, you know, and and for these generations that have grown up and all they've like a large portion of their so- social life and is through these social media platforms tearing at them and, and uh, pulling apart their image of themselves can be extremely detrimental. Um, now, again, this may just be my personal approach (laughs) like if ever anyone wants to because i mean i i wouldn't say i troll but like if i go on reddit right i mean there's i'm gonna speak my mind and my opinion on something knowing it now not to not to piss people off and not to just because i'm like look this is you know where where this is going i have to respond you know (laughs) almost like i like there's some misinformation. There's some disinformation. There's some like uh, maybe some harmful ways of thinking about things. So I'm going to respond knowing that because I'm not, I don't take the same position as or have the same opinions as or expressing what's happening in this echo chamber. I already know I'm getting down votes. I'm getting, you know, which is kind of, which is kind of like a trolling thing. Like, but trolls go into it like with the anticipation and expectation and the hope 
of getting the downvotes and the negative comments because it's like, ha ha, you know, I got you, no. you know, because. But they just go in there to talk shit. Right, but that like there's there's usually no ream or sorry rhythm rhyme reason. There's none of that. It's just like you may think you're smart, but you're an asshole, and that's just the end of it. Right. Like they're not actually engaging in any thoughtful or meaningful conversation in any way. Like I would assume you would be. Right. They're just in there like, yeah, great theory. Too bad he's gay or something like right. that. Because but that's but it what would I'm be saying is I'm approaching it almost from the same mindset that they are as far as how it's going to affect me and my self-worth because they're not going to allow when they go in there with the intent, like I'm just going to mess with people. They're not going to allow negative comments and down votes or thumbs downs or whatever to affect them in the same way that someone who like took the, the, the duck face uh, uh, selfie and, in their bathing suit and posted online with the hopes and the prayers that they, that they were going to get all this positive feedback, all kinds of thumbs up, all kinds of kissy faces, all kinds of happy faces, all kinds of comments like, Oh my God, he looks so amazing. Right? So they go in with that intention. And when there is negative feedback, it hurts because they've attached their self-worth to it. Whereas a troll is not attaching their self-worth to your response. In fact, they almost are amused. in the opposite. Yeah, they're amused by a negative response. That's why they're going in. Now, I'm not saying... That's where they get their dopamine. Right, exactly. I'm not going in with the same... Like, that's not my come from. I'm not like, oh, let me see if I can get some negative. But because I haven't attached my self-worth, like, I'm confident in my opinions. And I'm not, I'm not concerned with what you may think of me when I express these opinions, right? So if you react negatively and downvote and you know all these other things, it's not affecting me personally because I haven't attached my self-worth to the post, you know? Um, so in that sense, there's a similarity there between me and the troll in that my self-worth isn't attached to there being a positive response. And like I said, and on Reddit, I pretty much just, expect especially if i'm in an echo chamber that is is not in alignment with with my personal philosophies or anything else um but i, I feel like it's i'm just gonna drop i'm just gonna put this here right i'm just gonna put this here and not to see what your reaction is and not to get the negative reaction but just to break up the echo chamber you know what i mean like because it's everyone just regurgitating the same stuff same stuff same stuff and you walk in and drop something that, you know, that is like a wrench in their machine. It like kind of your, your opinions, your views, everything kind of gets questioned by this opposing opinion or, or, or even facts. Like I, I might just drop some facts in there, <laughs> you know, like y'all are arguing about all this stuff. Here's some facts, <laughs> you know, um, but again, what is it about people that having that barrier of anonymity or of even a computer screen or social media platform or even a car that allows them to react in a more aggressive or hurtful way? Because I, I can almost guarantee if you had like a troll and somebody else sitting in the same room and they were spouting it all off, they'd be like, this fucking guy over here is just going, going, going. Like, when is he going to shut up? He's totally wrong. Very few of them are actually going to engage in the way that they engage as a troll online. You're, you're probably to the, 
to a large extent correct on that. However, again, if you look at the studies with regards to empathy, yeah, look at Antifa, right? Look at these groups that are getting in the faces of others and screaming at them because they hold different opinions, right? And, and, and so th they're the minority, I would say. Like I'm they, thinking they, about they, like last week going to the store and going for a parking spot and somebody like racing around me and pulling in there and getting in before me. And I'm like, oh, you know, great. And I go like three spots down and park and get out and I'm walking in the store behind them and they hold the door open for me and let me in before them. I'm like, you're going to act this way at the door <laughs> now that we're face to face, <laughs> but you're going to cut me off and take the spot right out from under me. Right. I'm like, there's a difference in engagement with people when they actually have to be responsible or like connected with somebody or it's easy to flip somebody off when you're driving down the road and passing somebody. And it's a whole nother thing to flip somebody off when you're three feet in front of them. Yes, it is. And that's why I said to a large degree, you're, you're probably correct. However, <laughs> in the, in this world of black mirrors, it is, there is a lot, the level of empathy that people have for each other has been reduced. And in that sense, there is a way of interacting in public, a lack of, of social ability, a lack of, of uh, uh, what was my mom used to always say, you're rude, crude, and socially unacceptable. Okay. <laughs> There's a much higher level of rudeness, crudeness, and socially unacceptab unacceptability, right? So it's, uh, I would say that there is a tendency now. And I've seen it. I've seen it in public where people just act, in, in my opinion, a, a socially unacceptable way that it's rude, it's crude, and it's in a lot, a lot of times it's these younger people, you know, in their early 20s and things like that, who, again, they've grown up with this lack of empathy. They've lived their lives through the black mirror. And so there's, there's this sense of entitlement and righteousness to their opinions that they, they don't have the qualms that many of us in older generations would have in expressing themselves in a socially unacceptable way with other people. And That's almost like an increase of authenticity, or is it just no, like an increase in fuck you? Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's an increase in authenticity because then you're, what you're saying is, is that people, ha people have always had that lack of empathy for others and that they just were pretending to be empathetic. And I, I, I would disagree with that. Well, let's talk um, to the uninhibitedness of like, not caring the impact of what you do or say. Right. And there is that to a degree, you know, um, and again, it's going to depend on the situation, the circumstances, conditions, and the, perhaps the individuals that you find yourself with, you know, like, I mean, look at teenage boys, like even back in my day, teenage boy, you put a bunch of teenage boys together and you put them out anywhere <laughs> where, where they're not necessarily, and this actually, it may have been even worse in my day than it is now, but, uh, because there's definitely an, an, an effeminate uh, aspect to our educational system where they've made masculinity wrong and they, they're indoctrinating children with uh, this concept of toxic masculinity. So you're seeing a, a lot more effeminate uh, behavior in teenage boys these days. 
But uh, I, I, I would imagine that it's still there to a degree. You put a bunch of teenage boys together and you put them around a bunch of people they don't know. And, and again, back in my day, and there's a good chance that the, this group of teenage boys are going to act like a bunch of little assholes, you know, that they're, they're going to be rude, crude, and socially unacceptable. Um, so there, there is that element to it. And as we get older, you know, some, some of us grow out of that. I would say that you see it in groups of adult men, though, too, that there are those who seem to be living their life in a perpetual state of teenageness that they never seem to actually mature into, you know, uh, socially acceptable adults. And so, therefore, they still, in a group of friends, even, you know, I'd say the younger, probably the more prone you are to that type of behavior, but I... I would say that it's not outside the the well, maybe it's outside the norm, but it's it is it does occur, you know, in public places that people, depending on who they're with and what they're surrounded by, um, can act in ways that under a different set of circumstances and conditions and around different people they would not act. Right. <clears throat> It's, it almost seems like to me that there is a decrease in certain things, certain human traits like empathy mm-hmm. because of the, it's like a, like a muscle like I was talking about. So the it not necessarily being necessary in engaging with as much time as people do engage with social media. <clears throat> if social media was something that people checked for five minutes once a day, it wouldn't have nearly the impact that it, it's having. And mm-hmm. not just social media, but really screens in general, whether it be right. TV, which used to be like the evil box way back in the 60s and stuff, 70s and 80s, whatever. And it's, well, it's I don't clones, know if it was considered the, the evil box until late 70s and 80s. The program, yes. Yeah, I, called, I, called I called it the idiot box. The idiot box. <laughs> the idiot box, yeah. <laughs> But there's also like a magnification that's happening right. about like, like we'd never heard the term it's gone viral right? unless you were talking about a disease. <laughs> right. And now Which, it's like, oh, yeah, well, going viral well, is a good is, is it a disease? <laughs> yeah. But to say like you don't you didn't have a TV show in the 80s that went viral. You got no, because, great ratings. Because if it you was... didn't see it when it was broadcast, you didn't see it. Maybe on a rerun at some point in the far off future, you'll see it. But or maybe you were lucky and one of your friends had a VHS tape in and recorded that particular episode of that particular show. You might be able to see it. Um, like but... now we've got the ability to replay anything at, at any time. time. Yeah. If it hits the internet, it's there. And if it keeps getting pulled, somebody's going to get it and back it up and somebody else is going to do it and it's going to proliferate. It's just going to grow and be something that's even accessible on like the dark web. And this, and this actually also speaks into that, what we talked about at the very beginning with the echo chambering, because then you have, okay, this type of behavior or this type of scene or this type of event is popular. And so now people are going to duplicate it. Right? They're going to imitate it. And so now you've got more and more and more and more of this type of content 
right? Like you were talking about your inability mm -hmm. to comprehend TikTok, <laughs> right? Because all right. you, the only thing you ever saw and it was a bunch of little girls dancing around, right? And, and moms and, and it's just a bunch of dancing to meaningless stuff that you didn't get. Like, what's the draw? Why are people in this app? I don't like the, I don't like the, the songs. I don't like watching these girls do these stupid dances. I don't like any of the aspects. And then you're telling me that there's actually cool stuff on that button. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, t now. Granted, I didn't get it. Like I, I, my only exposure to it was through Maggie. And every time she would send me something, I would watch the one thing she sent me. Go, okay, that's funny or whatever. There was, and but I had to get the app and stuff like that to even watch the links she was sending me. Mm -hmm. And so, at a certain point, I let it show me some other things. I didn't just watch the one, and I came across a couple things that to me were actually interesting and it wasn't the dancing stuff, right? Um, like, you know, I came across a guy who did some pretty funny, deep thought kind of quotes. I came across this girl who's just a complete badass when it comes to a bow and arrow. And so like, I like followed them, right? And so, you know, and, and now- Algorithm shifted. Yeah, exactly. My algorithm shifted. So I'm not getting as much of the meaningless, stupid dancing stuff. Again, that's my opinion. That's my assessment. I'm sure there's tons of people. In fact, there must be millions of people who love the stupid little dances. People love Otherwise, it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be on there. <laughs> people it, love it. That's yeah. why it's so big. Right. TikTok is known for it. It's famous. Right. It's a million, billion, whatever dollar business because of it. Right. Like, I'm knocking it because... I'm me and I'm watch everybody else love stuff that I normally don't like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't trust me. I didn't get it either. I mean, it, there's still an anyway. element of me that doesn't get it at the level of its popularity and things, but I, I do understand from the standpoint of like, for one, it's, it's these tiny clips, right? So if you're getting these, if you are following people and you're getting these notifications, you're more likely to grab your black mirror, hold it up in front of your face, click on it because you know that at most it's going to be like a minute, you know, maybe two minutes. So it's, it's not like, okay, like Joe Rogan's podcast, right? You get a notification, Joe Rogan's got a new podcast, but dude, if I don't have three and a half hours, <laughs> I'm not going to just turn on his podcast, you know, because it's like, dude, like, you know, it's a long format. So it's like, I got to set yeah. aside time. Like, okay, well maybe I'll listen to it this weekend or something like that, or maybe tonight or whatever. But TikTok, because they are these little bits and pieces, which again, if we're talking about how the black mirror is affecting us, think about the attention span in that nothing is more than like 30 seconds, a minute. I don't know what the limits on it or any, I've never actually done a TikTok or recorded a TikTok or anything like that. So I don't know what the limits are, but I do know that they're pretty short. You know, they're Yeah, they're like not, 30 seconds exactly. maybe. Yeah, they're they're pretty short. They're not too intrusive on your day. So you're more likely to grab the black mirror, hold it up in front of your face and watch a TikTok. And then you might, you know, watch another and watch another cuz all it's going to do is like it's like, oh, bam, you wanted to watch this TikTok. And then as soon as it's over, bam, well, here's another TikTok. And bam, here's another TikTok, right? So it's like you might get stuck in what I call the TikTok hole. I've gotten, I've gotten stuck in the TikTok hole before where I'm just, like, it's just like, like mindlessly, I'll, uh, like for 
you know, like th I think at one time I was literally on there for three hours. Oh now, my God. Now, granted, How? hold on, hold on. It was when I discovered the, the guy with the funny, uh, the deep thought quotes. So I was just going through all his deep thought quotes and it was, it was, it was snack size entertainment. You know what I and mean? And you stayed like, on one channel though. <laughs> almost the whole time, almost the whole time I was just watching his stuff. Um, but then I went and like, I checked out my bow and arrow girl and you know what I mean? So I did kind of check out some other things, but I had just discovered him. Like one of his things popped up and I'm like, Oh, that was funny. And so I like, you know, went to his profile and I just started watching all his videos. Um, so yeah, there, I, I have gotten stuck in the TikTok hole and if Dude, it's were, all created to be addicting. Yeah. Like and, the longer and, they can keep you on a platform, the more right. money they make, the more ads they get to put in, the more right. whatever, the more value is created for the company. Right. So every one of those social sites, even like Google and the search engines and websites and the way that they're set up and left to right and all of the formatting and algorithm stuff that goes in to the online world right. is curated and designed to Pull attention. Yeah. Like that Google, is probably Google, the most expensive will, resource is attention. Google will even stroke your ego on like if you review a place, like, you know, because Google's like, hey, looks like you were at this store or this restaurant. What did you think? And then it's like, okay, I'll, you know, three stars, four stars, here's my comments, whatever. And Google will come back with a notification like a week later, go, hey, man, your shit's really popular. People really like your ratings. Do another one. You know what I mean? And I'm like, <laughs> like uh, no thanks. Like, I don't have time to review Walmart. You know, <laughs> I'm just, but it's again, it's wow. it is that dopamine feedback where Google's like telling you how great your reviews are. You know, like, hey man, people really dig your reviews. Like, you're Google. Like, a billion people have come across a billion different reviews, and you're just keeping a tally. You don't know that they like my reviews. <laughs> you know, like, you're keeping a tally. This many people have seen this business, right? So we're going to sell you on the idea of reviewing more stuff because that makes our website more valuable, right? They're getting free labor out of me. <laughs> and this is the thing that needs to be understood by everybody, which is why I love some of these, these movies that have been coming out, these documentaries that talk about how how the algorithms behind some of these technologies work right. because they are incentivized and used for very specific purposes. They, they say like, if you're not paying for the service nowadays, you are the product. Right. And that's just how it is. Well, I'm yeah. either going to make money off you paying me or I'm going to pull you in and keep you here for as long as I possibly can grab and hold your attention while I sell your attention to somebody else. Right. And, and again, that's part of the value of why they accumulate so much information on you. Because, I mean, if you look at like, again, the old school, right? When all we had was an idiot box in the house. And pretty much if you're watching a show on a particular channel, you're not getting targeted advertising, right? Everyone gets the Coca-Cola commercial. Everyone gets the... Ford Ranger commercial or whatever, right? So broad net. Yeah, it's a broad, really broad net. Now they know everything about you. You know, like 
I was, when I was buying a new truck, right? You know, of course, I'm going to look up some things about some trucks. Dude, like for a month and a half, two months, every ad on every website is like, oh, hey, the Dodge Ram, the, the F-150, the Chevy Silverado, <laughs> like everything, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Like every truck, like it's, they're like, hey, man, we know you're in the market for a truck. <laughs> You know, like, like we're going to try to sell you every truck, but that's targeted advertising. Like, think about that. You've never before in the history of, of advertising and marketing, have you been able to tar target your marketing and advertising like you can now because they know so much about you based on your habits with, among these platforms? Based right? on over 500 data points. Right. Like your age, that's one. Your gender, mm -hmm. that's one. Hair color, your eye color, your nationality, where you're from. what yeah, where posts you're from. you've liked, what was your most recent search, what was your five most recent searches. All of these data points come into play, and the algorithms can take it and say, ah, this one's ripe for a Silverado ad. Send right. this one to them. Right. Exactly. And like, we can't go into social media or even really blaming the black mirror without looking at its purpose. No, and what I, it is. Here's the because thing. Because it's working sense, exactly as it's supposed to. Yeah, in that sense, if I'm marketing something, I really appreciate that I can target market what I want to market. Yeah. You know? Um, and on the same and, and at the same time, like I'm not mad that Google's gonna feed me ads on Milwaukee tools. I love Milwaukee tools. <laughs> Google knows that. So the fact that like when I go on a website, well, me getting an ad for some new Milwaukee tool is better than me getting a Tampax ad. <laughs> like, like I have no desire to know anything about Tampax or to buy them, right? So it's pointless to show me that ad, but they know I buy Milwaukee tools. So I want to know about new Milwaukee tools or when I was in the market for a truck, like marketing to me, like, oh, but did you know this truck has these feet? You know, so I'm not even mad at it. Like the, like I'm not trying to even hide my habits from Google, you know, cause I'm like, dude, they send me, like, if I'm going to have to look at ads anyways, send me ads I'm interested in, you know, Sam, send me ads on pro audio equipment, send me ads on pro video equipment, send me ads on, on Milwaukee tools. You know? I'm not so mad. Like, yeah, exactly. I'm not mad at all. So send me all that. But and, the thing is, go ahead and use my information to figure out what you think is best for me to see as an ad. But they can do that, say, on social media or on Google because they've grabbed your attention and have held you yeah. there. And oh, yeah. they do that by releasing dopamine, making it addictive, having you stay engaged. And so really, if we're looking at the entire process, the, the aspects of which we're identifying as potential issues, like the decrease of empathy is a result of what they need to do for that model to thrive so that they can customize ads and can sell your stuff to Milwaukee tools or whatever else. Like in order to keep you here and addicted is what we need to do in order to keep our business model alive and thriving. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so it's Again. really like there is a benefit to it because it is highly valuable for like for you not to get Tampax ads. But also right. at the same time, the impact on your psychology. Now you're in an echo chamber of all the stuff that you like 
and reinforcing the stuff that you don't like. Ooh, boo this, and boo that. And you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And just playing to your biases. And now yeah. I can sit there and let them thrive and grow and proliferate. And now I have a new idea. Yeah. Because this well, new Google I, I, search, I, I've taken all this new thing. information. I don't, I don't think the aspect of the mirror you're speaking about now is the, is the detrimental part of it. Like marketing, like that's, that's not where I see the biggest risk to humanity. But they're like, like on opposite sides of the process. No, I, okay. Hmm? Like okay. I see the value. I see the value in the marketing aspect, both as a consumer and as a marketer, right? Or a, 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 uh, uh, an entrepreneur, right? I see the value in that both, both sides. And that's not what I see as the most detrimental aspects of digital devices and digital platforms. Um, so we've, uh, let's finish this aspect of, the, of this particular piece up. Um, you spoke a little bit about unintended consequences of these echo chambers. Um, and I would say that that dopamine release and the unintended aspects of the echo chambering is, you know, uh, uh, a polarization un, uh, by idea, ideological positions um, or ideological possession even. And maybe... Uh, this, this level of anxiety and depression when people don't receive the feedback they expect when they're, you know, curating an image of themselves and that selfie they thought was going to get all kinds of thumbs up and comments on didn't necessarily get the comments or thumbs up they were expecting. And so it's, a, it's that, that an unintended consequence well, I'm hoping it's an unintended consequence. Dude, that's totally intended. Like they even had an <laughs> well, no, entire no, department mean, whose job right, it was no, to design the like right. button. What, but it, but the, their intended consequence was for you to get that dopamine hit and to stay engaged with the site. The unintended right. consequence is the high level of anxiety and depression created when you wrap up your self-worth in your posts gotcha. and your selfies and things like that. That's the unintended consequence. And that if you're not mindful of it and are able to step outside of your expectations of your image and really to see that that ain't you. As much as you try to make these social profiles who you are, it's not. And that you should not wrap your self-worth up in this image of yourself, right? And I would well, say- Really, there's like a collapse of the distinction between like, oh, they hate me versus they hate my photo. Right. And, and then this, this leads into this, this idea, you know, so if I've got my, my self-worth in, invested in this image of myself, right? Well, then that the anxiety and depression that I get from what I believe to be uh, unexpected or unintended responses to it also has, has the effect of me being like more and more immerse, in, in, immer, immerse, immersing, immersing, <laughs> immersed, immersed. Well, I, I want to have ing on the end, but okay. So I become more immersed and more immersed. Right? I become more and more immersed in the digital world, and at the same time, I'm becoming more and more uh, alienated 
right? From the real world. Like I start, like there's this shift in that, and that's almost, that's another unintended consequence if I'm getting the, the, even if I'm getting positive feedback, right? Is that I become more and more and more immersed in this inauthentic world of images and mythology, and I'm becoming more and more alienated from or disconnected from, uh, I, I even I'm withdrawing from the real world and real relationships and authentic relationships and authentic people. Um, well, it seems I mean, like there's really just a collapse of a distinction that's happening there. I don't, the I, distinction I, I, between I real life and this online persona no, to it, say like, as if my online persona is me No, that's or these people are my actual friends. Yeah. It, but it's the distinction is the self. Like you, okay. you start to see the image that you curate as who you are. Right. You know, and so there's so, a distinction that's been collapsed between who you are and who your image is. What your image is. Yeah. That, that there, right. in You're, reality, there, that distinction doesn't exist for many. Exactly. There's just, and back in the day when we weren't plugged into all of these, these platforms, it was easy to like go to work and put up this persona and unplug and be like, oh, that's not me. That's just how I talk at work. Right. Now it's like, oh, that's not me. That's just how I, you know, what I post on social media. Right. There is something that's collapsed there that right. people are having a harder and harder time distinguishing between the two. Right. Like, especially when it comes to value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and in reality, I think it's funny that during this whole pandemic, we, they've come up with this, uh, these guidelines and these concepts of social distancing. Um I would say social media is one of the greatest forms of social distancing in that you are, you become more and more distant from real people, you know, and real, your, your authentic self. So there it's, it is a form of social distancing, you know, maybe not in the physical sense, but the fact that, I mean, it's, it's an interesting term, right? That the, the, or an interesting concept um, when looked at from a deeper level of not merely being, you know, physical distance between two people, but an emotional distance between um, a, uh, a, uh, what's, you know, a more substantial, I guess, ontological distance between people, you know, that there's a, that there's a distance between authentic being between you and other, you know, and uh, I think that this can have, this is having a, a definitely a negative impact on our culture and our society. And I think it's evident when you look at how people are engaging with. And, and again, if you look at the high levels of depression, high levels of anxiety, especially among young people, like, I mean, it's, I can't imagine Going through puberty yeah, on social media? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I can't imagine how, especially because when you are that young, you really, you really do attach your self-worth to your image. And that's why, you know, teenagers get their feelings hurt, you know, is because their, their self-worth is wrapped up in what others think of them and how others perceive them and what others say about them. Um, as you get older, you, you know, again, 
to how it used to be as you got older, as I got older, there was, uh, I put less and less importance on what people said about me and less and less importance on what people thought about me. Um, I think that does still continue all the way up to the point of like being the 90 year old person that just doesn't care about anything. Right. Yeah. And, but I'd say that, that it's, I would venture, I, I would posit that today that a lot more people are caught up in their image and what people think about them in the older generations than used to. Because, I would guess that too. Because of social media, because people have wrapped up so much of their self-worth in the image that is constant. Like, I wonder if it's because there's so much more attention. Like how many people see your face in a day as a 10-year-old in the 80s? Right. Versus how many people see your face in a day as a 10-year-old in 2020? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's... It's night and day. So, like it's something not, we know about. That's why at the beginning of the conversation, I said, uh, "I believe that your your uh, opinion that that some people just aren't affected by it." I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know. I think everyone <laughs> at this point, everyone is affected by the digital world in some way, shape, or form, or by digital devices. And when you consider that Absolutely. there are literally billions." Billions of people plugged in and billions of people who in some way, shape or form are curating an image of themselves online. I, I'd hey. say it's probably pretty significant, the impact. I mean, it's not like you, it's not like saying, oh yeah, well, it's like for me to ask, what impact do you think digital devices and digital platforms have on your life? That's not the same as me saying, what impact do you think microwaves are having on you? Like, well, you know, I can heat up food faster. Like, it ain't the same thing because this is your digital life has emotions and feelings and sense of self all wrapped up into it, whereas your microwave doesn't. You know, <laughs> regardless of how your microwave performs, you're not taking it personally, you know? Um, so I would say it's, it's pro like as far as technology goes, right? the black mirror and digital platforms are significantly impactful in your life and in most I want to take this a little bit more esoteric for a quick second because I'm really curious about this something we've talked about before um, as an aspect of how consciousness works is when people give you their attention mm -hmm. it's like a direct contribution of energy to the the point of focus right and you know like First time I really heard about this, I was really young. And my dad was telling me about the first time he played in front of 20,000 people. He's a drummer. Right? So he gets up on stage. He's looking from the back. He goes, oh, my God, there's so many people. And he walks out on stage on the stadium. And as everybody turns their attention and sees him, he passes out. <laughs> right. He said it took him like several stadium gigs in order to be able to just stand there and take the attention of 20,000 people. Right. And he's like, he learned to take it in and to work with it and to channel it through his drumming. And I've, you know, I've played myself in front of say 8,000 people before I've sought face to face with one people or been in front of a room of a hundred people or a thousand or 8,000 or whatever. And there is a very tangible 
level of energy that you can feel based off of the amount of people that are giving you your attention. And so I'm very curious. We know that this isn't limited by, by distance. If the entire world is staring at your photo, you're still getting the attention. And I'm wondering how that overwhelm of inflet of how that overwhelm of attention and energy could potentially be playing a role in this because it's addictive as hell. You wonder why all like the top rock stars were addicted to some type of drug or alcohol at the end of touring in front of thousands of people every night. It's because when you get off that stage, that surge of energy mm -hmm. is gone. Right. It disappears. So they need the next high. And like I've gone through withdrawals from being on tour and playing in front of tons of people to not seeing anybody. Mm -hmm. It's significant to feel that like you just feel tired all the time and you can't, you know, be creative or generate much because you have to all of a sudden start producing your own energy again. Right. I would and say, so, I would say most likely there is a significant impact in that, you know, you've heard of the, now we're talking metaphysical point, um, but right. it may be something we could measure if put into an experimental setting. But like if you take the metaphysical concept of like premonition on a, on a particular person calling you, like, oh, I was just thinking about you, right? Um, and so there's, and, and, or like when they've done studies on like dogs, knowing when their owners are heading home, all of a sudden the dog's like all excited. They, it's like, they know you're coming home, right? They know mm -hmm. you're heading towards there, that your focus, your attention, your energy is about to manifest and about to be present. And so that there's something that the dog senses beyond the typical five senses. It's intuitive. It's yeah, it's intuitive. <clears throat> and when you look at like uh, experiments they have done, like on focused meditation and things like that, where if in fact, we, I've done this in a training where you have someone leave the room and you tell everyone else in the room, okay, I want you to think these types of thoughts and focus these types of thoughts on this person when they enter the room. And then you take a read, you know, what are you experiencing right now? from the person who walks in the room and then you send them out and then you change it up. You say, okay, now I want you to think about these things and I want you to focus this kind of an energy on this person. And then the person walks in, goes through the experience and they experience that shift, right? Whether you had them initially focus a negative energy, like a, a disappointment or an anger or anything like that. And then you have them express joy, love, appreciation, things like that. Like there's a significant impact on what the person experiences in the room. Well, and, and something that pretty much everybody's felt once or twice is being in a room, say a crowded room, and there's someone across the room staring at you. Yes. You can feel it. Dude, you can I, have your back turned. I had it happen like, with a bug. I had it happen with a bug. <laughs> I yeah, dude, a praying mantis did it to me. Yeah, I'm like, dude, someone's staring at me right now. And I like look over and there's a bug like sitting there like just looking at me. But I could feel it. I could feel this bug looking at me. Dude, I've woken up because like my mom is staring at me at seven in the morning. Like, I was just wondering if you were actually asleep or faking it. <laughs> well, I was. So your energy got in here and started disrupting my sleep. But it's, it's very like you, everybody can experience it. Not, yes. I mean, everybody can, but maybe not everybody does. Right. And no. so I'm wondering, like, if you're 
the center of attention and you get an average of 20 people every day looking at your photos that you post. Right. And you get that, you know, intuitive, un- really like an undefined source of energy for you. Right. And then all of a sudden one day, like you get a bunch of thumbs downs <laughs> and it's a disappointed energy that's going right. towards you. Right. And you and maybe it's and not you 20, haven't even necessarily seen the thumbs downs yet. But there's this, and it was somebody energy. else tagged you in a photo of you drunk the night before. Right, and you're like, oh my god, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> like, I wonder how much that plays a, an aspect in the psychology and experience of online life. Right, and it's and got to be significant. I, I I would say it probably is. It probably is, and you could probably even put together an experiment to measure it, because, like you said earlier, distance. In experiments that have been conducted like this before, distance seems to be immaterial and irrelevant. Like the person doesn't have to be in your immediate vicinity to impact you, right? Um, and so, yeah, if you, I mean, again, this goes like you said. Dude, I can about, feel my girlfriend in the other room being mad at me right. every time she's mad at me. Right. Like right. anyone who's been in a real relationship has felt that at some point. Like, I know I fucked up. What did I do? Right. Yeah. And, 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 or even, and you, and you may even have an un, let's say, a an, an unidentifiable experience. Like, it's just like, oh, I just don't feel good. Like actually the, I remember the night before nine 11, right? Oh my God. The amount of anxiety in, in my body, I couldn't sleep. Like there was just this uneasiness and there was nothing in my life that would have created that amount of stress or dis-ease within me, you know, but I just, I, it was, because I'm, I'm typically, I could go to sleep like that. Like I'm, I'm pretty, I don't have an issue or a problem going to sleep or experiencing any kind of anxiety or anything like that when I go to bed. I couldn't sleep that night. And there was just all this like yuckiness, <laughs> lack of, lack of a better word. It was just this tension within my body all over and, uh, and, uh, and an anxiety in me. Um, and then I finally get to sleep and I get a call from my buddy at like six in the morning. He's like, Oh my God, did you see what just happened? <laughs> like what? No, I'm sleeping. What, what are you talking about? Why are you calling me this early? He's all turn on the TV, turn on the TV. You know, and it was right after the first plane had hit. The second plane hadn't yeah. even hit yet. And, uh, and so it, now the funny thing is I never put those two things together till years later. Like, you know, like I remembered that night, but it was like something distinct and separate. Not as like, oh, I knew I, I must have known this was coming or subconsciously knew it was coming. It, I never put that together. But and I'm not saying that it necessarily is related but it sure is interesting that I had that experience. And then if you talk to, uh, there were actually a, a whole bunch of uh, psychologists who had come forward and said that leading up to the events of 9-11, that a ton of people that they were doing therapy with were having these dreams about burning buildings and airplane crashing. And you know what I mean? Like all over the, all over the place. And especially people in New York, like as if it was focused, this experience of what had occurred was folk was in people's consciousness before it occurred. Um, and I, in, and I would imagine that if you focus a lot of energy, especially, uh, simultaneously, 
on anyone, even if it's through a broadcast or through, like you were saying, a photo. Yeah, if it's just a photo. Um, Now, if people are in passing see the photo, it's probably not as impactful because you think about people in your life and you may have an impact on them. And that may be when you get a phone call from them. Like people have had that experience. Many people have had that experience. That is not a unique experience. Like you start thinking about your buddy and then all of a sudden he calls, right? Um, and so there, there is definitely this connection, this metaphysical aspect to our being that connects us with other people. And if people are putting focus and attention and thoughts on your images online, I would say it most most assuredly has some impact. Now, how there's got to be like a higher level of seductiveness to like the sex appeal photos. What do you imagine? Mean? How many people? Okay, so for instance, like, why do why do I mean, really, this kind of ties in with a lot of other things. I'm just wondering energetically because it can be explained physically in a lot of different ways. But why, like, a woman posting a photo with less clothes mm-hmm. gets a lot more engagement than a woman posting a photo of the same woman with more clothes? I mean, there's a whole lot of <laughs> wait, other wait, things like suppressed on, sexuality the country's of, but <laughs> hold on, I have to say, hold on, you're this is a mystery to you why this happens. <laughs> No, I was wondering about the energetic aspects of it. Oh, Just, I wonder like if that's more of... fulfilling, more intoxicating to receive that type of energy. But really, there's well, there's I too s- many things at play here to really no, nail no, no. It down. I would say, well, let's look at it at a psychological and a biological level. Like, yes, in our current culture, this has been uh, this is toxic Suppressed. masculinity, and yes, and oh. it's like it's a bad thing for men to look at women sexually. The reality is that's biological. That's why we continue to have human beings on the planet. (laughs) It's because men are sexually attracted to women. And And, vice versa. Exactly. And so (laughs) this is the propagation of the species. So there is something that happens at a biological level and at a a psychological level that does impact people. And it's why a woman would do the sexy pose, you know, um, now she can make up whatever story and tell herself whatever story she wants about why she's doing the sexy pose and why she's posting it on Facebook. But at a subconscious level, it's about attracting an alpha male, you know, that that's, that's part of it. That that's also at play. Yeah. That's, that's part of your biology. So you're not like, I mean, yes, if you're intentional and conscious, you can elevate yourself beyond your biology and, and to engage with people at a, a, a beyond biological level. And, and this, this is something we do as human beings. I'd say it's probably what distinguishes us is that we do have that capacity whereas animals pretty much are just operating on that biological level, right? Um, they're not like courting, right? <laughs> like you don't have... You don't have dogs no romance. courting. Yeah, they're not courting other dogs, right? They're not like, oh, hey, you know, like having opening lines and trying to woo their their potential mate. Nah, they just run up and jump on them, you know, and go for it. So 
we do have that capacity to elevate ourselves beyond that biological level. However, it's still a part of who we are. So there is the, the, the woman in at, bio, at a biological level knows that in order to attract a, 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 an alpha male, a masculine man, a man who uh, will provide and, and, and uh, fill all the requirements of, uh, uh, and roles that the masculine would have in a relationship, that he's going to be biologically attracted to, you know, the indicators of, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, fertility, right? <laughs> Which is the butt, the boobs. Like, you can pretend all you want that, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm above and beyond boobs and butts, but that happens at a biological level because to propagate the species, again, there must be a sexual attraction there. And at a biological level, in order to produce more human beings, we are looking for fertility indicators at a biological level, which just happen to be in butts and boobs. You know, that that's something that we at a biological level are triggered by. You know, so yeah, the girl with hardly any clothes on, big boobs, big butt, and doing the selfie to accentuate, like she'll even curve her back and stick out her butt and stick out her boobs or have cleavage showing. Like these are all biological indicators for fertility. So yeah, men are in general going to be attracted to that and give it more attention. And yes, in a sense at a subconscious level, there is a sense of, of, of I don't want to necessarily say fulfillment, but that is what those signals were being sent out for was to get that biological response, right? And, and again, I'm just talking about at the biological level. <clears throat> I don't want to say that necessarily all women who do this are like, how do I get someone to come mate with me, right? That's, that, right. that's not often in, the intent. Yeah, and especially in today, the, the world we live in now, it's as if, you know, that whole aspect of the male-female or the masculine-feminine relationship is, is, uh, is, been, is looked down upon, is seen as negative, is seen as, uh, you know, like I said, there's this phrase, this term of to toxic masculinity, which from what I can tell in looking at what they label toxic masculinity, it's masculinity. It's men being men. Um, well, and, there's and so still... there's a distinction in that that I've learned from from like say Sylvia in her relationship workshops. One of the things that I struggled with is I threw my, um, she said I threw the baby out with the bathwater. I threw away my masculine power with my aggression. So by me trying to not be aggressive, I was also not being masculine. And I right. think that's a lot of what's going on. So toxic masculinity yeah, but is not really masculinity at all. It's certain levels of aggression. No. Because that's and, really and, what and, people But here's do. the thing. So now you're making up that that aspect of the masculine is wrong. Right? Well, no. Aggression is, does, is not inherent in masculinity. It Neither is. is it in It family. is. It is. Aggression? Yes. Okay. If, you got to explain If your family one. is threatened and you must protect it and you must therefore fight something that is the masculine that is the aggression right 
Now, yeah, again, we live in a world where that's not necessarily something that we deal with on a very regular basis, but it's still who we are at a biological level. You know, it, 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 again, because it's at the biological level, it would be assumed and presumed if all of a sudden someone jumped out of the bushes with a knife and was coming at you and your girlfriend, she's not going to step up to defend you from it. That's not in her automatic, right? Now, if there's a kid with you, she may, you know, protect the child. But the presumption at a biological level is that you're going to handle that shit. That's on you. That's the masculine. Is we do see that a lot. Up, to be masculine, to be aggressive, fight off the threat, right? So that's not toxic masculinity. That's masculinity. Okay? No, I'm saying, yes, there is a time and a place for aggression. You know, it's not like, oh, yeah, go be uh, aggressive in a bar. <laughs> you know, like, like, <laughs> walk into a restaurant and get aggressive with your waitress. You know, like, no, that's, right. that's not the place for it. But it is masculinity. And it is an essential part of masculinity at a biological level for survival of the species. I am noticing that there are aspects of femininity that crave, like, dominance, maybe? No, they crave like, masculinity. Yeah. And what's funny right. is... That's they, aggressive. In our, because culture, like, in our culture, they they want men to be effeminate. They want them to be, like, completely void of all masculine traits. So they're pounding this into us. You know, especially now, you know, they're indoctrinating kids with that toxic masculinity and all this other shit. So you've got these, a, a, a bunch of effeminate men, right? And guess what? Women aren't attracted to effeminate men because at a biological level, they don't think that this thing can defend them, <laughs> that, that this thing can protect them. He's a pussy. <laughs> like, like that's at a biological level. They know this. They sense this. Mm -hmm. And even though at a at a at an intellectual level, at a philosophical level, at an ideological level, they think that that's what they want in a man. But when it comes down to at a biological level, that's not what they want in a man. And yet, who's that? Uh, who's that? That big transformational guy with the banana fingers? I have no. Oh, are you talking about Tony Robbins? Yeah. Okay. Dude, Jack he's a big Black dude. He has more fingers. banana fingers. The dude is like what six <laughs> five? I mean, that's a big dude. I don't know. But he <laughs> something he said stuck with me through. Something he said has stuck with me through this conversation. And he said, What people say they want and what people respond to are two completely different things. Oh, absolutely. And it shows up that way. If yeah. you like I've been through some workshops and through practice been able to presence powerful masculine energy and it demands attention from every man and woman in the environment. I walked into a, a bar or a restaurant or something like that. Everybody looks at me. I had women falling off my shoulders at certain points and like it, not in, in like uh, I'm going out there trying to woo people or to seduce or anything like that. I'm just noticing the effects of being a certain way. And there was no aggression in that. However, I do think that the potential for that must exist. 
because that is part of masculine is to be that that safety net that protector that overseer that like adventurer that whatever there's all these different qualifiers to put on it i don't think it's as tangible as people believe it is what do you mean not as tangible like to say that masculinity is when you x y and z it's it's like an energetic aspect it's not something well it, tangible it's intangible well, yes if you're embodying right ontologically masculinity right so you're embodying the beingness of mass the masculine right all of that potentiality of the masculine is within you so whether it be strength whether it be uh, ability to provide, whether it be ingenuity, whatever these ma whatever masculine aspects that are at a biological level, what, using your words, command attention, those are there. They're there as, as, as context, as potential within you because you're presencing within you masculinity. It's not something that can be pretended not, right. and not have a significant impact. Like, yeah, you could pretend you know, because I do see this in a lot of the bravado and machismo that people put forth of like, like they're acting masculine or they're, 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 they're talking the talk, so to speak, but they're not necessarily walking the walk or presencing within them. So it comes across as an artificial or an inauthentic kind of masculinity, yeah. right? Um, and, and again, but that inauthentic masculinity can still impact, you know, the, someone who's, seeking masculine energy right so it, it can still have an impact but it's not as powerful as you truly presencing within you the complete potentiality of the masculine you know um right. th that is that would have an impact on the people around you i feel like because it's like, it's at a surface level at that right, point right so, yeah so, we can uh digress yeah i was gonna say so one last thing i wanted to touch on on this particular subject um so there's this uh this new movement philosophy of transhumanism. And one of the underpinning principles of transhumanism is that technology can be integrated with the human being in a way that enhances the human intellect and physiology. And now I, the reason why I use my air quotes there on enhance is that is it truly an enhancement? Like if we look at like at a certain level, you know, we've talked about some of the drawbacks on our capacity to think, our capacity for empathy, our capacity for memory can be and is having a negative impact on us as human beings. So if we start, you know, this whole transhumanist philosophy and movement is like, it's about integrating technology with the human being. But right, let me read the definition real quick. So I just, I just looked it up. Okay. It says transhumanism is a uh, philosophical movement that advocates for the transformation of the human condition by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies to greatly enhance human intellect and physiology. Okay. So it's like altering That's... ourselves with technology yes. for improvement. Yes. 
And, yeah. and, and now I'm saying at some level, the black mirror in your pocket is the first step in this. And is it enhancing? Like we've already seen in. It's like already, a trade-off. It's exactly <laughs> in reality. If we, if now we, let's say we separate the human from the, from the technology. Is he better off? Is he enhanced? You know, I see like what's the lasting effect. Well, I mean, if you no longer have to use your mind to think, right? If you no longer have to use your mind to remember. So there's one argument that I've heard a lot, which is our brains have a finite level of energy or attention or focus or whatever. And if I don't have to focus on math, I can focus it elsewhere, right. which to an extent, I think, People have a tendency, the people have the possibility to be overwhelmed with information or stimulus or whatever's going on. So to take some of that bandwidth and reallocate it to something else, so I don't have to retain these facts, I can now get more creative over here, could potentially be like a trade-off for improvement. Because even without that, I've still gained strength over here. But here, here's, the, here's my problem with that. There's a presupposition underlying that. And the presupposition okay. is that as human beings, there's a limit, right? That there's a limit to our capacity to think and to retain. Well, it, the presupposition is that the 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 so, mind are, of are, the individual. Are you are you gonna tr are you are you rebutting the presumption? Because you just made the statement that there was a trade off. <laughs> so you yes. you have already supported my statement. So if you're trying to rebut it now, you're really rebutting yourself. <laughs> no, I'm you saying the presupposition the, the is pre that you would reallocate to something else instead of just but there's, taking No, no, the presupposition is that you are limited, that I need to free up resources in order to focus on something else. See? And that yeah. is a presupposition. That is not necessarily so, right? Yeah. Like you... Maybe, Gingy, you have the capacity to be able to do both, right? The both and, as opposed to the either or. Can I be a master of one thing, let's say of mathematics, and be a master of art, like poetry, right? Can I master those? Yes, absolutely. Human beings can have the capacity to master many different things. And to, to have the presupposition that I must let go of this in order to focus on this. I don't, I don't see that. I don't think that that's, I don't think that as far as human beings go, that that's, that that's a, an obvious presupposition. Especially right. And it's to assume that people are always going to work at 100%. At capacity, no, assuming I'm there assuming, is a capacity. I'm assuming that human beings are operating at like 5% <laughs> on a, on a day-to-day exactly. basis. <laughs> now, but it doesn't mean that they can't operate it. Um, and that's, and yes, it may, it, and it may have to do with how we're learning, right? Um, I would say there are some definite flaws in education, public educational that. So here's the question. By not having to memorize how to do certain math or by not having to memorize you know, the names of whatever I've, I'm talking about, 
And having the resource of Google or of anything else or of Siri or something, does that allow for growth in other areas? No, I'm saying that only if you believe the presupposition that you are limited in your capacity. Okay. Have you, have you met Deepak, my buddy Deepak? No, okay. I've heard tons about him. Some okay. pictures I've never met him. Okay. Amazing musician. Can play every freaking instrument. Also, amazing at math. There is not any mathematical concept you could throw at this guy that he just doesn't have an absolute handle on. Also, amazing memory. The guy doesn't store people's names and numbers in his phone. He just has recall of everyone he knows, their phone number and everything else. He just types it in and goes. Okay. So now he is definitely not the, the common or average human being, but is that potential within everyone? I would say even more than that is within everyone. Right. The ability, so like there is a certain amount of time in a day that you can learn things and retain information, embody certain things to work on projects. And if you're allocating some of that day to studying something that you could replace that with something else, you could theoretically go and start working on something else that you could then retain later because now you don't have to focus on like memories, memorizing a map of a town. You can right. just punch it into Not, Google Maps. But here, here's the thing. So remember- But that potential it's is still- It's interesting because I didn't think that this part of our conversation was necessarily significant in this, in this subject, but now it's apparent that it is when we were talking at the For beginning sure. about the, the ways that we think and retain information. And I told you that I have within me this need to understand something um, Beyond it just being raw information, I must understand the hows and the whys and what's behind it and what's underneath it. Um, so that's my approach to information in general. So I retain a lot of information because of my approach to information. Now, when you consider, uh, now I look at myself as a lifetime student that I will always be seeking to learn and understand more and more and more and more and more. And I dedicate a large part of my free time to learning and to understanding and to thinking. Now, how many people do that? Not many, especially if you've got the black mirror in your face all the time, right? If the black mirror is in your face, are you thinking? Not necessarily, depending on how you use the black mirror, okay? So the black mirror could be used as a research tool. It could be used to acquire facts and it could be used as an, as an addendum to your thinking. But I, what I'm seeing as a trend is it's, it's become, it, it's people are living vicariously through the black mirror. That their personality, their engagement is all happening through digital platforms and digital devices and it's taking away our capacity to think and to remember. And these, I'd say, probably pretty significant and important aspects of, our, of, of being human are it's being It's almost like we use it as a supplement instead of a tool. I, I, I don't know if supplement's the right word because a supplement enhances, right? A supplement, it can well, it be, replaces. It can be used <laughs> as a supplement but it's being used as a crutch. 
or just a flat out replacement. What do you mean replacement of what? Like of thinking? <laughs> yes. Well, exactly. I, I, I no longer have to I think about that. or even memorize thinking. my neighborhood. Like how many times have I typed in the address of the grocery store in a new town before I finally memorized how to get there versus actually looking it up, having to memorize how to get there and then making the drive, which is what I used to do. I'd have it like I used to have the ability of going somewhere once and I knew exactly how to get in and out of that place. No problem. Right. And now because I use maps for directions and other things. Right. I have like I no longer pay attention. But you're using it as a crutch, exactly. So that's I've used the it as a replacement for my normal method of going somewhere. It's, and so because I'm not paying attention and not, noticing landmarks. I mean, hold on, hold okay. on. You're not okay. really using it as a replacement because you're still driving, right? You're still using your hands, feet are on the gas and the and the and the brake. Okay. Right. It's not so a replacement for driving. No, but so you're still using. You're still getting there, right? What yeah. you're doing is you're using it as a crutch because. Before you were conscious and aware and intent on knowing where you were going and how to get there so that you would be able to recall how to get there. So I mean it as a crutch in that now you don't have to be present. You don't have to be aware. You don't have to pay attention. So it's, it's I not, think we're saying the same thing. I was saying it's a replacement for those things. For what? Because I don't have to be present. I don't have to be aware. I don't have to watch for landmarks. When I get there, I just type in my home address and go right home, even though I'm three blocks away. Right. And that's why I'm saying it's a crutch, because you don't have to be. In, yeah, in I'm saying it's the aware. same thing. Yeah, but I, I don't see it replacing those things. It's not because it's not, it, it, it has no capacity to be present. It has no capacity to, rem- to remember. It has no capacity to, to do those things. It's a crutch, and so you don't have to do that. But it's not doing those things for you. It's a crutch, which allows you to not do those things. It's not replacing those things because it's not doing those things. I mean, I'm afraid of the day if it ever does start to do those things, (laughs) then I'm going to be worried. You know, when it starts to have an intent, when it starts to have presence and awareness, then I'm concerned. (laughs) I hear you. But at this point, it doesn't have any of that. So it's not replacing those in that in the substantial sense. Now, in the sense that you're able to not do those things and be in that sense, you can say that, but I, I don't feel like that's a that that's a, a, a proper uh comparison or 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 uh an uh and it I don't know, it doesn't feel like a replacement it doesn't that that doesn't seem like the right word in the sense that it's allowed you to just let go of things that it doesn't fill the place of you know what i mean and i'm agreeing with you yeah replacing i was trying to i put put words to my my like replacing my need for presence because now i'm using it as a clutch so I think we were saying the same things, but I like your terminology better because even like if I was literally using a crutch, right. it doesn't replace my leg. I've still got a leg there, right? but it's replacing my need to lean on it and to, to really like be on it. Right. So I can transfer some over here and, and rely on something Ooh. else. And what a great analogy, because let's say you just always use the crutch. You don't need the crutch necessarily but you're always using it. What happens to that leg? 
It atrophies. It atrophies. So it's the same thing. If you're using the stop black, working. Yeah. So if you're using the black mirror as a crutch for thinking and for remembering. Or emotion. Your or capacity. Attention. Right. And, and, or social interaction. <laughs> right. And that's another thing about these younger generations. Uh, it's funny. This is, this is actually a phrase from many years ago. I had this girlfriend. And we were out somewhere and there was this other girl there who had like a crush on me and she was like, like interacting with me. And when me and my girlfriend left, she said, uh, is that girl socially retarded? (laughs) (laughs) And that, that phrase has always been amusing to me because it was like, she doesn't get the social cues that as, as, as domesticated human beings, we know how to interact in social environments in a way that uh, is comfortable for people for within the, the social interaction, right? right. And it's like, it's like that guy, you know, you're at a party and you're in a group of people and there's the one guy in the group who just doesn't get the cue that, dude, we're sick of hearing your stories, you know? And like, <laughs> you're talking too loud. Yeah, you're talking too much. You're talking too loud. Nobody gives a shit about what you're talking about, but he's not picking up on it, Right. He's not picking up on those social cues. Oh, and yeah. this girl was kind of like so that. Many guys she was like, like that. She, she was so awkward and like had no, didn't have those, those, those qualities that the average domesticated, well-socialized human being has. And my girlfriend regarded that as socially retarded, right? So, and and that's the in this in this sense, people are now living their lives through a social platform. Are they becoming socially inept to where social interaction becomes strangely awkward and undesired to where people are avoiding social contact in order to maintain their life through their digital image, their digital platform, digital interactions. Like, I think it's interesting that... Well, it's it's like why all the, the high school kids now, they'd rather text than make a phone call. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to curate what I'm going to say before you exactly. see it. Exactly. Type, 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 type. Delete, delete. Retype. Delete. Okay. Send. Exactly. Yeah. Like, last night, we were at a, a party with my girlfriend's uh, friends, and they were all talking, like, how do I tell this guy that I don't want to go on a date with him again? It's been, we've gone on four dates. It's been a couple of months or something like that. And I'm like, oh, just like this. They're like, oh my God, that's brilliant. (laughs) And all I said was like, hey man, not working out. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I mean, basically that, that simple. I mean, it was a lot more to it than that, but the curation process, it took what, eight of us to send one text (laughs) to this guy to figure out exactly what to say and i'm like she knows what she wants to say right she if, if he was in person she would just be like uh sorry i just don't like you like that anymore right or i'm not i don't feel the romance or or whatever the excuse is it's not you it's me yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it was so funny because that's the the life that a lot of kids and 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 young adults are living right now. Well, that, and that it's is a life of curation. Exactly, it's a curated image, and that's and you're. I think you're hitting the nail on the head. Dude, and that you use that as a crutch. You use curation as a crutch across the board. 
Right. It starts to feel really terrifying to, to go ahead without that crutch. Right. And to have an actual social, an actual authentic social interaction. Right. It becomes. I wouldn't say that the curation is not authentic. It isn't. It's just it absolutely curing. is not authentic. Like and I'll write a text that I'm curating and I'm like, curating, this is really what I meant to say. The reason you're curating is to perpetuate the image. Okay. The reason not all the time. Yes, like, it is. Think about the this. Way, think about the it. reason you prefer text messaging over an actual conversation with someone is because it, you can maintain the image. If if you're okay, you know what authenticity is? Someone tells a joke or farts and you just laugh. That's authenticity because you didn't pre-plan and think about how you were going to respond. It just came out of you, okay? And so if you're pre-planning and, and, and curating, you know, constructing a response and it's not just emerging from you, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, you know, all of a sudden or uh, in the moment, right? then it is curated and it is perpetuating an image. Now, what if whether you're taking you're, the time whether to say what you want to say again, same. It's okay. still the same because you're still, you're still thinking about it, right? You're still constructing it. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to construct com uh, communication, right? Like I always, like my brother was used to be terrible at this where he would, you know, put together an email and send it. <laughs> without like like why don't you sit on this or proofread it yeah like or just like let it be for a night save it as a draft if you still feel like sending in the morning but the next morning you might like when you're not in the heat of the moment and you're not you know all caught up and you're like oh yeah, yeah i'm gonna edit that <laughs> like, like i actually want to say something different yeah and it, like but that's this is this, so that's not authentic it's not it's really not i'm not again not that authentic not that well, I'm just curious because it's like, what did I really mean to say in this? Right. Is it the first thing that came out? Is it the second thing? Did I misspell? Do I want okay. to use a different so word? So don't confuse authentic self and authentic being with communication. Okay. They're two distinctly right. different things. And you can communicate authentically or you could communicate inauthentically, but they're not the same. Being authentic is not communicating, okay? So constructing communication is carefully constructed communication, okay? It's right. not inauthentic or authentic in and of itself, okay? And because most of your construction of image happens at a subconscious level, you can't even say like, well, no, I was just trying to really figure out what I wanted to say. Yeah, because you were concerned about what they would think, about what you said, you wanted them or to what interpret you think it. About what you're going to say, or, or or you wanted it to be interpreted in a certain way, right? So, it it's not that authentic versus inauthentic is good or bad. Okay, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, with no authenticity in your life, if all you do is live through these digital platforms, curate an image, attach your self worth to the image, and and buy into everyone else's image and and believe that the image is who you are, that there is something human missing there. You, you said something in that that I think is really important. And not to say that the rest of it wasn't important. <laughs> <laughs> but the, 
the fact that the communication is not authentic or inauthentic in and of itself. Right. It's who you are that is the authentic you that gets expressed from that point in whichever way. Right. Because I was confusing, like, well, I authentically meant to say this. And even though it came out as a mispronunciation or a mis, you know, misspelled or autocorrect, whatever, that's uh, that's not necessarily what I was authentically trying to say. So I'll authentically curate to say exactly. No, it's different because that's just the communication aspect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I see the point that you're making. <laughs> okay. Which is key for all of this. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there is a level of if you're being authentic, the communication is irrelevant. Right, absolutely. And and we will get into that. That is going to be one of our topics in these discussions is effective communication because I believe right. it is, a, it's paramount to human beings, culture, and society to be effective in and with our communication. Which um, is what I was talking about. Not yeah. authentic communication, effective effective communication right what is it that i'm really trying to say Mm -hmm. still communication absolutely yeah and i'm i'm worried about saying it correctly which is not authentic i'm worried about spelling it correctly i'm worried about saying what i'm actually meaning to say intentionality Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily authentic right those are all different modifications that come from the authentic experience or the authentic expression right and, and, and again, it's, it is, you know, we've been using this word the entire time of curating. Um, and it is, a, it's curating your communication in the sense that you are being careful in its construction, but not to, not to be authentic or inauthentic. It's to be effective with your communication. Right. Now, exactly. And, and that's a different kind of an intention. And, and when I said that, the image can come out in the communication, in the curation of cu- your communication, you could be curating the image. That's mostly happens on a subconscious level. Not all the time. Yeah. There are people who will sit there, well, I want to sound this way and I want them to think I'm this and I want them to think I'm that. I want them to think I'm smart. So I'm going to have my thesaurus on my other screen and I'm going to, well, I don't want to use that word. I'm going to use another word because that doesn't sound smart enough. That's trying to, cons- that's, perpetuating the image of the self through the communication. So it's not necessarily an effective form of communication. You start using big words. You're not necessarily more effectively uh, communicating something, especially if your choice of that word is merely to sound smart. Now, there may be a more appropriate word, like when we had the back and forth on replace. And I said, well, Mm -hmm. crutch, you know, not that one's right or one's wrong, but in choosing what word we use there, it may convey a concept and you know that that is that gets closer to what we're trying to convey, right? So there's there's that aspect of communication. Now, is it authentic or inauthentic? That again, I don't think that that even belongs in the conversation of what was happening in our communication in that moment. What what we were trying to do was effectively communicate an idea to each other such that we kind of landed on the same page with the idea and the understanding. So we were just being precise and exacting and intentional with our use of language so that there was a, uh, an understanding 
that we came to with the use of those so in in talking about using these things as a crutch mm -hmm. and what happens when you physically use a crutch and you never use those muscles again they atrophy yeah what happens when somebody is using image as a crutch and never strengthens the muscle of authenticity does it atrophy yeah and and when i spoke into that also with social interaction you know because if you are you if you're so attached to the image and and you never allow yourself to just be you and be the authentic you if you're constantly in a mindset of portraying projecting an image then there's the there's less and less like you called it a muscle there's less and less exercise of that capacity to be authentic so at a certain point it becomes it, it, you have the inability to even be authentic right every it's not every that the authenticity of, not that the authenticity goes away just like an atrophied muscle doesn't just vanish right it just ceases to work until you can get it reactivated right so it's not like a permanent by authenticity right it's just it takes a back seat yeah it shrivels up it stops working mm -hmm. it stops functioning it stops being reliable right yeah. i think we really hit the core of this entire issue of it as a crutch mm -hmm. sorry the the black mirror and the things that we've seen online as being a crutch and as being something that could potentially not replace but um neglect certain aspects of self mm -hmm. to where they do atrophy in a certain symbolic sense. And that could effectively be damaging to, or at least um, ill as an effect in, in society and individuals and, and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That's, that's the game, man. Yeah. Any uh, final thoughts? I feel like, I feel like I hit all the points I wanted to hit on this. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's it for me. Yeah. All righty, sir. Thank you very much for the conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And <laughs> I will uh, talk to you soon, my friend. Yeah, sounds good, man. Thanks for a great talk. All right, bye.